And uh, we've got another Wanderer returning uh, today on this episode. Who's with us in the listener's chair? I've also been wandering. I've been in Italy and um, got back at the start of uh, the month. Yeah. We're recording them. They're thinking they're going to make those big bucks, but they're not. They're just going to—they're—they're they're just going to be dragging, dragging the the bottom, you know, because the pyramid is now built. We're back. This is the People's Countryside Environmental Debate Podcast, and we don't actually talk about the countryside as much as we used to. This podcast evolved out of uh, the People's Countryside Project that we set up to give the environment, make the environment's voice heard through film, photography radio and podcasts sort of evolved out of that so we have our time again we might not call it the people's countryside environmental debate podcast anyway i'm Stuart the wild man rabbit one of the co-hosts and i bring nature into the daily lives of anybody with a heartbeat who is the co-host i am william ankler thanks very much for being with us um yeah the people's countryside environmental debate podcast i i was having a discussion with somebody at a, a birthday party yesterday yeah and they said i said i mentioned to a podcast oh, what's your podcast called and there's this Ever so such short pause when I'm thinking, oh, yeah, now I'm going to have to explain this 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 name because it is so long. It's, it doesn't run off the tongue, does it? The People's right. Countryside Environmental Debate Podcast. Yes, if we had our time again, we would name it something else. We'd name it something like, I don't know, Dave. Yeah, and the, and the Wanderer returns. You've just recently the, come back from Finland. How has that changed your perspective? How do you think that will come across in this podcast? Um, it, I, had, I had 10 days in Finland and... Eight of those were spent with my mother-in-law. Now, that might sound like hell, but the the great thing is that my mother-in-law and I don't speak the same language, um, so she just speaks with me through through food and saunas, which yeah. is great. Um, Min has to do, my wife has to do, all the does all the talking. So it, it gave me an opportunity to be in countryside, be in absolute silence often. There was no real... I remember being outside once and all I could hear was a blackbird. Yeah. No other sound, which was amazing. Uh, but it gave me an opportunity to, to switch off and just read and do some Duolingo and learn some Finnish. And uh, we've got another Wanderer returning uh, today on this episode. Who, who's with us in the listener's chair? Uh, you have indeed got me back. Um, it is Susie Darrington. I interned with Stuart and William over the summer and I'm back uh, after a few weeks. Yeah. I've also been wandering. I've been in Italy and um, got back at the start of uh, the month yeah. that we're recording in. So uh, you're going to come back and uh, some of the future questions we got uh, resonate with you and you wanted to just stop by and uh, put your two pennies worth in. Yeah, now that I'm back and have the opportunity to run my mouth again. Yeah, exactly. And today's episode is going to be about landlords and um, renting homes and things like that. So if you've got an opinion on that, stop, stop by and keep listening. Anyway, this is a... We have conversations and sometimes we have debates. And William, generally debates occur when there's more than just the two of us. Yeah, so this, there's three voices on here. So this could turn into a debate or or just an echo chamber. Yeah, we can, might all agree. Who knows, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we want, we want to try and show um, localised actions that help the quality of life wherever you are. So we try and come up with actions that address... Uh, the question that the listeners send in for us to discuss and uh, hopefully uh, even if you're listening on the other side of the world we're in Oxford England if you're listening on the other side of the world hopefully you'll learn something and today's question William is from Derek in West Hendred where's West Hendred West Hendred is uh, west of East Hendred exactly and where's East Hendred east of West Hendred exactly and that's in Oxfordshire do you want to read the question William 
Yeah, I have to get it in quickly because Susie likes to normally jump in with the questions. Yeah. Um, so the question from Derek in West Hendred, thanks very much for your question. And you, you definitely are West of East Hendred, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. The question is, should landlords be demonised as they are, after all, providing homes? Even if they put the prices of rents up to much, though, and no one can afford them, the homes are still there, though, and could be turned into Airbnbs. Now, Susie, you saw that question. We don't see these questions um, until we, we sort of open, uh, open the envelope, as it were, William and I. But we shared with you all the up-and-coming questions, and this question resonated with you, and you wanted to put, put an opinion in. What's your thoughts on that question? It does resonate with me. I think because where I live, there are uh, a, lot of, a lot of people own second homes um, in Cumbria. People, I think, often think of Cumbria as a very mixed bag. You... you go around the outskirts of the Lake District and you have a lot of people living below the poverty line, relying on food banks, um, on benefits. And then as you go into the Lake District, you have all these beautiful big second homes in the middle of nowhere, usually owned by people, I guess, that work down south and they mm. come up uh, for their holidays. And also because of the cost of living crisis, I think, and we saw rents go up even when we might think they don't need to go up because the landlords that have those homes own the homes and they are actually only only benefiting from the cost of living crisis there so there i i had a lot of thoughts when i was looking at this question surrounding both those kind of things but you know it, it, for for many landlords profile landlords is a business and uh the the the, the tenants in there are are are, are a means to an end so uh, 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 um, um, isn't this just business people making business decisions and then because it's people's homes it's impacting on on their lives uh, uh, isn't it just a business decision uh, these landlords when they put the price up i just it's but you've used the words word home there you know you know home is for me if you dig down into that is a place of sanctuary and a place to feel, to feel comfortable in not feel that you're you, you know you're struggling to actually meet the rent price uh. monthly rent and also not and also to feel that you can be there for a prolonged period of time um i think that may be the problem with 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 this sort of land these landlords that are basically putting the prices up it's making them not be able to afford that and also put stress on the this whole, whole idea of yeah not being at home it's not really it doesn't really feel like home it's like too becomes a very transient place surely though if a, if a landlord playing devil's advocate here you may notice if a landlord uh, in the cost of living crisis uh, situation, he's got a, got a house that he rents out, and uh, the, the price, everything, cost of everything's going up, and he has to put the rent up. What's what's wrong with that? The landlord, I think, what what's kind of uh, sinister about this? I think what you were kind of saying is, these are people's homes, and pe everyone's struggling. And a lot of the time, landlords have a big portfolio of yeah. multiple houses or flats that they're renting out. And they own those buildings because they've uh, come into the business with a lot of money already. They have the finances to invest in that. And this cost of living crisis is putting their prices up somewhat on their regular living prices. Yeah. But they're actually passing off more than 100% of those costs onto their tenants because they know that they can they can do that in this crisis. They know that that's the market prices. So they're taking advantage of the so, situation. Yeah, they're taking advantage of that. And 
uh, potentially putting pressure on evicting tenants that they've had living there because they know there's someone else that can pay because the demand for housing is so high at the moment. They're getting profit from this crisis. The, the, major, the major supermarkets were pulled up by the government and basically to say that you, they, they were almost using the um, cost of living crisis as an opportunity to raise prices when they didn't necessarily need to. Yeah. And I think that that probably has happened. That will be happening within the, the private yeah. landlord uh, market as well. There's always it's an opportunity for me to raise more money when I don't necessarily, like I think Susie's saying, that we don't, don't they don't necessarily need to. I think also the biggest problem we have in this country is the lack of, of, of affordable rental places that you can only privately rent it's actually really hard to go outside of private rent and that you can only privately rent well what i mean is that the actual stock of social housing is much lower and and the bar to actually get into social housing is much higher than it it, it should be uh i will reference finland again actually the finland does have a decent stock of what's not even classed as social housing it's just owned by the local authority and you can it doesn't matter what, what what predicament you're in you can actually apply for it it's more more equal, equal, more equality, I would say. Is is it the the issue here? The way we look at uh, rent rented homes, the way we look at it is different to other countries, like in Holland. It's sort of like a, it's not considered a status issue if you're in in something owned by the state because you have more flexibility over there to to. to Make make adjustments to the infrastructure of that place. It's more. It feels like it is your home. Yeah. So is it the way we look at rented properties and home ownership is, is the core of this issue? I think so. I think we've kind of got this now obsession with ownership, which isn't necessarily an achievable dream for, especially people in my generation. Like, it, I'm, my sister's found it hard enough to get onto the property ladder, and she's in her thirties, and she's yeah. just got her first property. And she only owns part of it. It's a two-bedroom flat. Um, Shared ownership. Shared. uh, So she owns half of it. She and her partner own half of it. And the other half is owned by someone else. Yeah. Extremely hard to get onto the property ladder nowadays. And also, like you say, this kind of... You don't have much control if you live in a council house over the way your house looks. Also, I think people do look down on those that live in council housing. Uh, you know, Benefit Street, that whole idea. Yeah. I think, yeah, it would. I think it would be better if we had more, pri- uh, not private renting. Um, well, like council-owned uh, houses and flats that we could rent, because then the incentive isn't so much in the we can make profit. It's yeah. we need to look after our. Constituents, yeah. The question I would like, I would ask is, is where where does that drive in the UK come from for for ownership? How does it? Where does it actually? Maybe. (laughs) I think it might even go further. I think it goes way back. It goes back back. to the uh, uh, post-war, the sixties. You know, aspiration. I would even say it goes even probably even further back than that. You know, we 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 definitely have a very crowded island, and we are very um, protective of our own property. Yeah. We, we don't like people wandering into our own property. I'm just thinking again. Uh, uh, we had Heli Harley Paulostel, you remember yeah. my friend Heli from from Finland, yeah. talking about the right to roam in Finland compared to in the UK. Um, and we we like to have our own little area that that we want to have as our own. But yeah. it's just not everybody can do that because the people that have money can buy lots of property and yeah. then actually almost have it. It kind of almost feels like a form of. 
I would say slum necessarily, but you you get whole swathes of, 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 of um, housing where people are just are just living just on the line of being able to afford it because they're literally paying for somebody else's mortgage. Yeah. They can't then save any money whatsoever. They're just live, literally living day to day almost or definitely yeah. month paycheck to paycheck. Where where somebody who's owned these properties just rakes in the cash. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the problem we have. We have people that just have owned so much property that they can just they can just I think I think what's happened in the last 20, 20 years is, you know, the, the, the horse is bolted somewhat on on owning property because the big, big increases have happened already. That's done. It's a pyramid scheme, effectively, the home, home, uh, property ownership. Yeah. Oh, it was happening, and, hasn't it? Yeah. And, uh, and, 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 and the big increases in value, I would say, happened between 40 and 20 years ago. And uh, people now are jumping on it, and and it, they're they're thinking they're going to make those big bucks, but they're not. They're just going to they're they're just going to be dragging dragging the the bottom, you know, because the pyramid is now built. And I remember, I think I've said this on the podcast, and I've said it to you, William. I remember having a blazing row with um, Mrs. Wildman's sister in a in a pub, and uh, she, you know, she. She owns her own house, and I was given the alternative view of, well, you know, it's, it's got. I have no aspiration of owning my own property, and and uh, she felt threatened by that. Instead of actually sitting there and challenging her own 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 situation with what I was saying, and and if if her analysis had stood up to that, um, then that's fine. But I think she just got into an argument and started saying, oh, well, the Americans own houses. We're not the only country in the world that own property. The majority of civilization in the world do not even have it in their head of owning. You know, go to New Zealand. It's not it's not on their radar of home ownership. Yeah. So some people do, but it's not an aspiration. Well, like I said, I mentioned Finland again. You own you own the property house you can own a property very much so but yeah. you're also very happy for people to roam across your land if you've got that yeah it's, it's it's very different way of thinking i just think there's such a such a a need for places for just just a wide variety of places it's a bit like you, yeah. to, to live in right it's a bit like going in, if you're walking into a supermarket and the only two options you have are you know literally really expensive and slightly expensive rather than it being a whole range of different things Mm. you know different types of places do you think this kind of sovereignty that all this uh, i'm not sure the right way to phrase this the desire to own homes and own property uh it's kind of reflected as well in our desire for national sovereignty and brexit it's in there i think it's in there like, do you think maybe this is something in the character of British people now instead? Yeah. And, or English people, I should castle, say. man in this castle, almost, sort of thing. Yeah. I think it's also, there, there's this bit of, like, you when you get a property, almost like you're, you're talking about the property ladder is a good example. You're actually going up the rungs of the ladder. You're actually going up rungs of society. Yeah. You're getting to or you think you are. Exactly, that's the yeah. That's the dream. Yeah. I, I, I mean, my, or, my wife and I have talked endlessly, well, not endlessly, maybe, but we talked often about, changing where we live but every time we think about it it's like actually where we live is perfect for us yeah we have no children we just have one cat it's just the cat and myself and my wife so actually one bedroom flat in the location we have is absolutely perfect we don't need any more necessarily Mm. we'd like more we would do 
we might probably would like a two-bedroom flat, but then you probably go to a two-bedroom flat and go, actually, it'd be great if you had a three-bedroom flat or a two-bedroom house, you know. I think that's yeah. the aspiration of, like, you often find, actually, you often find people end up in houses that are far too large for them because yeah. they, they've had their family. Their family has now moved on um, and they start to rattle around in that house and they want to keep it. As well. Yeah, but so then you, that side of but you can't kick them out, you I know. Mean, of course not, no. But it, it, there's an unfair distribution within this country i think because if you go up to the northeast redka and places like that yeah redka not red car redka and uh so i know these things and um I google it just to see what happens just so see how that's pronounced because stuart, stuart might not know well somebody from redka to, had a go at me the other day said it's redka not red car anyway uh if you're listening you know that, that's that's for you Anyway, if you go up to those places, uh, Sunderland, Middlesbrough, there are whole streets that are empty and boarded up. Mm. Okay, and there's nothing actually wrong with them. It's just a lot of people have left and come south for work. Mm. Um, or or, or, the, or they, those places aren't available and they're, they're, they're crowded in the houses with their family. Mm. Now, is there an argument where you can't force this on people, but you can nudge them in this direction? If you had more focused on building more places of work up in that part of the country, you would have less pressure on people coming he down here, you know, because there's so it's much pressure on the southeast. Spreading the population up. It's already there. The, the housing is there. Yeah, it's empty, you're, but you're, the population's in the wrong place. You're spreading. You're, you're basically spreading the people out. You know? well, people don't like to move. When you actually... They did a genetic... Um, uh, analysis, scientific analysis of, of the since uh, the Viking times, and there was a very distinct line mm. going across the country, which sort of cut halfway through Birmingham. It went it's from like a the diagonal way, line, isn't yeah, it? Diagonal yeah. line, yeah. And very few people uh, of north or south of that line migrate above it, you know. Yes. And yeah, and and, and so how so people are. are very, you know, this is where we live or don't want to move. But how, how do we get people into those houses that are empty that are already there? Well, is, it, is that a question we can ask ourselves? You know, why do we live where we live as well? Yeah. You know, why don't I move to somewhere like Sunderland, for example? Is it, is it that the, the, the people at the top have to put the work there for us to go to, to be able to pay those bills? I think it's a, a mix of both, because I think you need, that. I think, obviously, the North people I think tend to think of the north as a very working class area and if you want to build a, a career um, yeah. you go down south and you work in London, you move, you, you don't stay there yeah. um, so I think maybe that that needs to level up, I say in quotation marks um, yeah. the, the north but also where I live they build, they have housing projects all the time, they're building new houses constantly and they say this is affordable housing. And yeah, you get a couple of two-bedroom houses maybe. But you also get multiple three-bedroom, four-bedroom, five-bedroom yeah. houses. And they're all building that. And no one's really living in them because no one can afford them. If, if they can afford them, it tends to be people that have multiple houses. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's both of those things working together. The developers building it because going for the most most profit and then yeah. selling it to the the profile landlords that yeah. then have it multiple occupancy and in oxford i don't know about anywhere else but in oxford there is this culture of when a developer puts in an application for, to build houses on a certain amount of land 
I think 50% of them have to be social housing to get planning permission. But once they start building, if they say, actually, our calculations are wrong, we can only do 25%, mm. the council say, well, okay, 25% is better than nothing and allow them just to build 25%. And by the end of the build, you might have 10%. Um, you know, and it, it's just there to get it, get the planning application. The whole thing seems twisted, but how, how do you bring in a new system? Mm. I was also going to say that these new, a lot of these new housing uh, estates that are being built reminds me of, um, I remember seeing a documentary about the large council estates that were built in the, the uh, out in the suburbs of Glasgow. They built all these massive, great big council estates, but put nothing in them apart from housing. No other facilities whatsoever. Yeah, and they still do no, that now. No housing and that type of thing. No, sorry, no, no, no facilities like doctors, shops, that type of thing. Mm. And that, but that's what is happening with these out of town. Yeah. housing estates i think there's quotas they have a, a housing a, a builder will need to have a certain quota of houses built in a certain period of time or certain area um but they don't have anything else in them they don't have any you need facilities there's this whole idea of 15 minute what 15 minute cities right yeah so the whole idea of you actually everything is within 15 minutes walkable distance of where you live you know your doctors your your your, your yeah um, a pub maybe or a shop you know the, the things mm. you actually need to sort of work on you know live on a on a day-to-day -day basis and what you're finding then is well because these things these these places are being built with just houses and they're sort of out of the way as well is that 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 means that more people rely are reliant on their on cars and that means you get more cars on the road which means you get probably more pollution as well <laughs> and more congestion it's not it's not very well thought out yeah and a lot of the time if it's in the middle of the like well i don't know in the middle of the countryside or in the middle of nowhere or up north where I live, you get no public transport or yeah. hardly, you get rubbish public transport. Mm. And I'm glad they've brought in the two pound single scheme. You know, it's not universal. Uh, and at least I don't think it is. Um, and that's going soon as well, it, that's changing. Or the they £2. say 50. it will, Hope. oh, is it really? Yeah, I think, that's I think a disappointment. Yeah, I think it's going to up to two pound 50. Okay. So at the moment, the housing uh, market is driven by profit not by need Absolutely, yes. yeah. and uh so where what is the pathway transition to 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 changing that well that attitude exists for more than just housing it might even begin very soon to exist for healthcare in this country we're shifting to a more private nhs and we're shifting in attitude i think to well you know more private public transport even um, oh, yeah. We've even got private water in this country. Like yeah. the whole attitude of the government, definitely, and maybe of people in general. I'd, I'd like to think not. I'd like to think maybe people don't necessarily like. I don't know. Think about the fact that their water's privatized a lot. But I was gonna say buses are privatized. Yeah. Railways, tra yeah. trains are privatized. And they never I, used to be. I find it absolutely hilarious when you're on a, on a train somewhere like I've you're going, you're going from Oxford to London. Um, and they say, thank you for using Great Western Railway. Oh, no, let's say Dick Cott to Bristol. Thank you for using Great Western Railway. We hope to see you again soon or something like that. It's like, well, that journey, I can only use Great Western. Yeah. They have a complete monopoly on mm. that on that, on that that trip. There's no other no other train company uh, runs along is, that yeah, line. This is one of the things we study in economics as well. That's one of the ways um, people can actually maintain profit in the long run is if they monopolise um, a certain part of the market. Because if they don't, otherwise there's competition that will mean it 
it narrows out at zero profit. But even when there's competition, like there is in Oxford with the buses, yeah. they just basically keep the same prices. So one when one company ra- has to raise prices, the other company raises prices. So the, there's no competition. So there's Stagecoach and Oxford Bus Company in Oxford, and they both are literally the same price, pretty much. They'd have a little bit. You might have a... If you get, like, a, a deal, you might get mm. a bit a better better deal if you just use one bus company. But generally Probably speaking... Probably because the, the way people use buses is not as though they're a private commodity to, like buy rationally and be bought it's people use it they'll use the first bus that comes they won't just yeah. they won't think about oh well i could save 10p by going mm. to this specific bus company mm. and that's the really i do think people do think about these things as though they are publicly owned and for them to use they don't think about it because people don't think about like as though they are uh, trying to work out what the perfect um purchase to make is they're not being 100% rational and that that's not a flaw of people I'm not saying but um sorry this is very very muddled this point yeah, no, uh, right. but I'm saying that you're, you're working through it in real time that's yeah, the thing people are thinking about these commodities as though they are um there for them as though they are there yeah. uh, for their needs and yeah. not something that they have to be 100% rational about and I think that's how people think about markets in general you know we're not uh, made to be perfect um, yeah. capitalist calculating machines but yeah i think a lot of the things it's not just housing in this country that is um privately owned and that we think about as as a private yeah. commodity there's lots of things so to think that we could change the way i don't know we approach housing without changing all these other things i don't think it's going to happen yeah. i was talking to somebody uh susie who, who you admire greatly uh, she's a resident of Oxford. Uh, oh, no, don't say. <laughs> for proponent of uh, the donut economy, uh, oh, yes. Kate Raworth. Row- yes. I was actually in a conversation with her the other day, and she was talking about fairness. There's no fairness across the across the whole board. Yeah. So my, my point of, uh, we've already got all these, uh, some like in Burnley and places like that, there mm. are streets that are completely empty, boarded up, Liverpool, all those places. That there, there are there are empty shops that could be converted into homes. Uh, th- th- nobody in this country needs to be homeless because there there are plenty of things that are already in in existence. Mm. How do we? Talk, having spoken to Kate, how do we relocate our populations to the places that already have these houses? But fairly, you know, because people have families, people have links, people have connections, people have emotional bonds to places and don't want to move. How do we relocate people fairly with that quagmire behind it? You've got to give them an incentive to do it in the first place. And because moving is actually, I think maybe going back to the whole thing of the whole idea that people don't move very far is actually moving particularly even just moving just down the road can have mm. a profound effect on your life yeah yeah um, very somebody very close to me had that felt that impact so moving halfway across the country as particularly as you're older i think when you're younger it can be a little bit more of a simpler process mm. um, you still have to leave behind schools friends family, connections. Yeah. family as well family yeah, yeah. and roots yeah because I live where my mum's the only one that stayed uh, in, like, Kendall. Uh, but she grew up there, and that's where her mum lives, my grandma. And she wants to look after her. That's where she'll stay. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can, I can, I, can, I, I hear that entirely yeah. with what happened with my mum, for example. But yeah, Stuart and I have always lived in the same city. Uh, I briefly. Well, I I moved away for six for six months to the Peak District. Well, yeah. uh, very true. Sorry, beg your pardon. But you've a lot of your life you've lived in Oxford, haven't yeah. you? And you've lived a, for a prolonged period of in Oxford. Yeah. You? you did shuttle backwards and forwards between Manchester. Yeah, because Sue, Mrs. Wildman, for twenty years lived in Manchester. However, we are both very settled in this city. We know yeah. the city very well. Mm. And this city knows and us. Now you've, but you've, Susie, you've moved from up in Kendall down to Oxford. Yeah. What was that? What was that actually like? Because it's you've had, I know you don't 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 have to go into mm. too many personal details because yeah. we talked off off recording about this. But how, what was it? What was it like? Because that's the, maybe that's one of the questions you could. That's maybe an answer to how yeah. people could be moved or, or, or encouraged think, to move. Yeah, I think that is what what does make a lot of people move nowadays. Because my mum, although she lived in Leicester for a bit, she went to De Montfort and did mm. um, fine art there she ended up moving back because that's where the opportunities were for her. Whereas my auntie, who now lives in France, did a year abroad where she now lives uh, at her university. My mm. uncle uh, went to university in Coventry and now lives in Birmingham, which is very near yeah. because, again, that's where the opportunities for him yeah. were. I have moved down here because this is where my degree is. It's where I'm studying and I've loved it. I found it very freeing. And I think I want to now stay down south because I really like it here. I, I find there's definitely more opportunities for me here in terms of academics and stuff that in Cumbria there's no, like, universities. There is a University of Cumbria that's based in Ambleside, but that's based not just in Ambleside, it's based in other areas. The nearest one is Lancaster University. I want to stay down here because that's where the opportunities are it's where my new connections are with my new friends and it's where I know now. I I love it here. I really like it. Um, so what you're talking about there is a clear pathway to, to an opportunity. And what, what I mean, you, you're doing a course, uh, students do a course, and it's not unusual to go to a job near where that university is because the employers are keeping an eye on that university because they're producing the people they need. Mm. So you get these nuclei. But say, for example, you do have... How do we do that in reverse? How do we get people to go from the south to the north where the houses are? Because I'll give you a, a, a very, very brief scenario. Sue and I, my wife, uh, we moved up to the Peak District in about 2004. And... Uh, with the idea of settling up there and in the the natives up there were very restless and didn't want us up there even though they had these empty properties and we were taking it up and we were taking up an opportunity we weren't made welcome and uh, so i didn't settle up there so i basically stayed in oxford and commuted for 20 years uh, backwards and forwards and she stayed up there and now she's moved back to oxford what responsibility is there of the people who live in these places that are, have empty properties to be to be welcoming to people who then come in and instead of seeing them as outsiders taking their jobs, mm. but outsiders helping improve yeah. their communities? What responsibility is there? I'm wondering where like these attitudes come from as well, because I definitely see it in a lot of rural northern areas. You get a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment as well. And uh, they might see you coming up even and kind yeah. of see you in a way as someone that's that's coming from another place. Um, and I think that's felt on a much greater scale when they see people coming that 
maybe don't have English as a first language or have come from another mm. country or visibly look different from them. And these people won't feel welcome. They won't want to live somewhere where they don't feel like they can settle and belong and be treated uh, like fairly, kindly. Um, but I'm wondering like what creates that attitude in the first place. And I think it must be poverty and being impoverished. Because if you're thinking I'm clinging to this job, it's the, it's the only thing I have that's keeping me afloat and someone's pointing the finger at you or another um, immigrant uh, or anyone that's coming to the local area to work instead of pointing to, um, I don't know, the fact that they can make more money by um, uh. hiring people that are willing to work for less. Uh, people are going to start you know, having terrible attitudes towards people that are coming in. I think there is a responsibility there, and I think that 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 does there does need to be a cultural shift there. So that 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 um, it's about fairness there. Yeah. You know. But also, if these, I think the cultural shift, the attitude shift needs to happen. But also, these people need to have opportunities and feel yeah. secure enough yeah. that they they don't feel threatened by. Is there is there an also an educational side of this as well? Yes, definitely. What I mean, and, and I don't necessarily entirely just mean formal education. I, I'm talking about life education. So I've grown up in a city that is extraordinarily multicultural. Uh, Stuart and I, we've talked about the school we went to. And yeah, it's like United Nations sometimes, <coughs> some of those classes. Absolutely, yeah. It, it, I was just surrounded by, uh, I remember one particular guy, I do not remember his name. Uh, one of my, my classmates was from Australia, another guy who evidently had Pakistani origins. It, it, just, it was just, that was part of my upbringing. I was, I was around people from various different backgrounds. Oh, so I remember. In a way, you're a kind of, you're, you're being educated by being yeah. immersed be, be, by, by being surrounded by people that don't look exactly like you. And yeah. you feel Isn't very it normal? You yeah. feel very comfortable with it. Whereas if you, if you grow up in, in a very predominantly single culture, let's just say, not even just white, but just single culture area, anything, anybody that looks different to you or sounds different to mm. you, it could sound, it, you could be quite intimidating and, and, and scary mm. in some ways. And I think that's where it kind of it can it can orig originate from that, that that school we went to i remember it was a weird moment in my life and it sticks in it now because fr fr french was compulsory to be taught for for three years you had to do french for three years yes and i remember i still remember this uh, mr ems's name was he used to teach french lovely lovely guy and uh, i was in the class and it was a very focused group it was 10 10 of us in this french class and I was the only white English person in there. Hmm. There were some immigrants. There were some people who, I remember there were there there was, there was a, a lad who, who 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 he was from Zambia. His dad was a politician, and it was sort of like it, you had all these different cultures in French being enforced on them. And and but you know when I looked around that class, I thought, well, forget this, this is a strange scenario of all these different people being enforced to speak French. Actually, this is this is actually a a mix of people. I might never actually have the, in my life have this di diversity around me again. I remember, I remember being aware of that at that moment, but that's mm. the benefit of growing up in Oxford. You, it's normal to have that variety. But I will bring Brexit quickly into this as well, mm. because the areas that actually voted, a, lo a lot of the areas that voted, massively voted for leave because of immigration, yeah. actually had a very, very small proportion of immigration. Yeah. So actually it was more the threat of, or perceived threat of immigration that led them to vote to leave, not actual yeah. actual immigration. It's kind of a paradox. You need um, people from different cultures, different backgrounds, yeah. different countries to come up to your area to have people realise that actually 
they have nothing to worry about it's all in their heads and to also kind of take a step back and realize um the racism is just i mean that they have it has no grounding it's it's wrong um and i will say my area is um very i mean i did go to a school briefly that had a high proportion of uh immigrants from uh eastern europe but um and a lot of them didn't speak english as a first language but overall um where i live is very white and where i went to school is extremely white and everyone is um, pretty much white english um and I will say my constituency did vote Remain. It was the only one in the Northwest to vote Remain, but that is because we had a Lib Dem leader who was very pro-Remain and who kind of made, stamped that attitude out a bit. I was just thinking this, this is, we have really gone way I know. away from the original <laughs> question, haven't we? But it's just the way these conversations go, they meander like this. It yeah. does link back though, because um, that we we need people in in the northwest we need people moving up to the north and also we do need people in this country to work it's kind of a myth that they're taking jobs like we desperately need people we have so many job vacancies in this country like it's insane um what else was i going to say like your uh i was going to say something about the formal education i know you brought in that kind of education i think that's probably more important actually Mm. but uh there is a very strong correlation between the level of education someone has and the uh, anti-immigrant sentiment. The uh, So to get people to relocate to these areas where there is housing, you have to do more than put the, the pathway of having a job. You need cultural support to, yeah. you know, you have all Lots these... Yeah. So uh, that conversation I had with Kate, Kate uh, from uh, the Donut Economy uh, concept, to me, that, that that sort of shifted a load of different thoughts because uh, fairness needs to be factored into this. But do you want to read the question again, uh, William, just so we can uh, yeah, so bring ourselves you, back? Again, for your question, we have gone uh, off on a bit of a tangent, but I, I, like Susie said, it is it is relevant to this conversation. Has, it does is relevant to this question. And the question yeah. is, should landlords be demonised as they are after all providing homes? Even if they put the prices of rents up too much, though too much though and no one can afford them the homes are still there though and could be turned into airbnbs uh, there is an issue with airbnb because i know that prague suffers from a bit of a problem with with airbnbs that yeah. it's actually a bit of a ghost town in the winter because there's so many larger chinese organizations for example have bought up lots of properties yeah. and they've turned them into airbnbs and then mm. it's, de- it's dead they say yeah. the same thing about hawaii and actually where i was in italy bologna has very anti-tourist sentiment because Mm. Um, there's a lot of Airbnbs and a lot of hotels. Right, um, okay. So, then we always try and come up with an action. What's the action? This is a, a 30, uh, well over 30 minutes, coming, coming up to 40 <laughs> minutes for this episode. What's an action we can get out of this? Um, to try and have shorter episodes when Susie's yeah. with us. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, <laughs> I don't have an action currently. Susie, do you have an action? Well, I think because of what we were talking about with the immigration thing I think you're right when you brought that up I hadn't thought about it originally but it definitely is a a bigger barrier to movement upwards to the north and to um, getting people in these areas that don't have a very high population so I think definitely tackling that within uh, your own communities if you live in a community like that because I think it's not necessarily the responsibility of the person that's moving to kind of undo that attitude sadly it's something that needs to come from within these communities first. And I do think 
where I live, my constituency, the fact that it voted Remain uh, was a good sign for that. And also the fact that a lot of people are regretting Brexit now, maybe that's an in route for uh, that. And so, yeah, I guess discussing immigration and why it's not a scary thing why it's a good thing actually a very positive thing is it is it is it almost like to think about um, immigration not just from from people who, who arrive from outside of the country but also try to think about immigration internally as well you know that like movement yeah movement movement of people actually freedom of movement uh, within the uk for example and maybe that's something that's a pathway to um more people moving yeah. actually being able to actually understand how you how much easier it is to move making it easier to move you know yeah. taking out some barriers and making it simple i'd uh yeah. for my action i'd probably uh, expand or contract uh susie's point instead of actually uh talking as a community about it being more welcoming to outsiders i would say bring that back to yourself maybe actually just look at yourself and say well how can i be a bit more welcoming and nice to people i don't know um because uh, having been through that myself in 2004 to 2006 not being welcome up in the peak district uh by, by a certain group of people uh that was horrendous and then, well, what can you do as an individual to maybe be nicer to the people you come across on a daily basis i think that's uh i think that's enough for this episode don't you william absolutely it's been nice to have susie back on the podcast and thanks for joining us again susie yeah you're back next time as well i am yes for the next episode because the next question has rattled your cage as well it has so uh join us then